You were saying Pauline Kael didn't like the film we watched uh, for this week's episode. Yeah, famous story. The editor of The New Yorker, William Sean, after reading her review of the film, which will remain nameless for the time being, <laughs> said, you know, I don't know if it makes any difference to you that Terry is like a son to me. And she said, tough shit, Bill. <laughs> when did uh, Pauline Kael pass away? She died in 2001, but she had been retired for 10 years or so because she had Parkinson's. But so she obviously, having passed away in 2001, could never have gotten Twitter. I would love it if she had Twitter. I think it would go a little something like this. <laughs> no, but how would it have gone? Would Pauline and Kale have been... Like, would she have become, like, an insufferable Twitter lib? Would she have kind of maybe moved culturally to the right in some way? What do you think? Well, first of all, I think she would have resisted it. I mean, she was known for her incredibly long and dense articles. I think she would have viewed it as the downfall of civilization. But I don't know if she were a little bit younger, but exactly the same person. Like, if she were one of her acolytes, if she were one of the Paulettes, as they were called, who is on Twitter now, yeah, she would be a Russiagate person. Uh, <laughs> you think so? Well, I mean, I mean, I think uh, I think uh, James Wolcott, one of her best acolytes, I think he approvingly shared one of those articles about like the left is as bad as the right these <laughs> right. days. You know, I, I would have she, she, she would have been in like the alt center. You think? I I think so, and I also think like every review. Not every review. She obviously had like plenty of good <laughs> body good, of work, good stuff. Yeah, she had plenty contributions. She had plenty of good takes, but but there are so many reviews that her her bad takes, like Roger Ebert's, they're the two who like their bad takes almost like go down in history. They're like historically bad takes. bad takes. Yeah, like yeah. they become like Ebert's review of Blue Velvet. Right. It's like part of the legacy of the movie, weirdly enough. And right. just as her review of I mean her review of Bonnie and Clyde, her positive review is part of the legacy of that film. Right. She saved that film. Last Tango in Paris, I feel like, is remembered almost as much for her review, where she compared it to Stravinsky, right. uh, as it is the film itself. And likewise, I mean, her bad review of Dirty Harry, anytime anybody talks about Dirty Harry, they have to bring up that review. It was the definitive liberal response to Dirty Harry. And I just think, like, if her review of... Her review of Shoah, the famous Holocaust documentary, which she gave it a very negative review... Um, a, a bad, a poorly written and thought out review, if you ask me, and if you ask a lot of people. It's funny, like that's a review that, you know, it's almost become part of history. It's one of the legendary bad takes of all time. And yet the fact that it was written in a pre-Twitter world almost lends it a gravity that it wouldn't have now. <laughs> like if that review came out now, it'd be like, Shoah, Claude Landsman's much acclaimed documentary about the Holocaust is a long moan. Read more at thenewyorker.com. And it'd be have like Just ratioed 500 into quote tweets. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then there'd be a reply by Pauline. There'd be like, Oh, LOL. Seems this blew up. Yeah, I'm uh, not mad. I'm actually laughing. I think I think readers would agree <laughs> that the uh, subject of a film uh, wouldn't make it sacrosanct and that healthy discourse around it. Uh, more on my Patreon. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, frankly, some of the ones like her saying, you know, the, the revolution has come, you know, the audience at the New York Film Festival premiere of Last Tango in Paris was enraptured, <laughs> much like the audience at at Stravinsky debuting The Rite of Spring. If she tweeted that, it would have like 500 quote tweets. It'd be like, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> 
just the fact that it was written in a different time in the New Yorker and people couldn't like the responses to that were like John Simon writing an article in wherever he wrote for or Andrew Saris writing something in the village voice or Rex Reed writing something in the observer that like subtweeted her. That'd be like 50 guys with soy face avatars doing yeah. the same joke. Yeah. And also it wouldn't be Pauline Kale. It'd be somebody shittier than that. <laughs> <laughs> or we're recording, right? Uh, oh, of course yeah, we well, are. Welcome, yes. back, welcome back to Michael and us, everybody. I'm Will Sloan. And here's I'm Luke always. Savage. Yeah. yeah, Will had to get his name in before mine, as is often the case. Uh, yeah, top bill that's in the contract. <laughs> uh, read, read it. Consult with your lawyer. So you just got back from a long trip. Where were you? Speaking of segues. That's right. Um, you know, we actually have kept to a basically regular recording schedule, but I feel like uh, we haven't done one of these in a while. Well, we try to see as little of each other as possible when we're not recording. <laughs> yeah, it's a real, uh, we have a real Jagger, Jagger Richards kind of relationship, separate dressing rooms and all that. Uh, but no, I think, you know, time refracts a little bit while you're away. And I went uh, for the first time in my life, believe it or not, to beautiful British Columbia. I was on the West Coast doing an event connected with my book, uh, The Dead Center, on Salt Spring Island, which is one of the Gulf Islands. It's about a 20-minute float plane ride. Never been on a float plane before. That was pretty cool. 20-minute float plane ride from Vancouver uh, Airport, that is. And I had an absolutely wonderful time there. Uh, Salt Spring Island, probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Very small community, very tight-knit community. A lot of retired artists and, you know, all-around interesting people. I had lovely hosts who, uh, who put me up introduced me to lots of people. The event itself, which was at something called the Salt Spring Forum, uh, was a lot of fun. I had a great time uh, talking about the book, and I met a fellow named uh, Jim Erickson, who moderated the event. Really interesting guy to talk to, worked with a lot of, you know, interesting people, got an Oscar for his work on uh, Lincoln. He's a longtime, uh, you know, set decorator, set designer, also worked with uh, Terrence Malick, worked on There Will Be Blood. An amazing body of Can work. Can we get some of those guys on the <laughs> podcast, maybe? <laughs> An amazing body of work. Just one of the many people I met. A really lovely guy, wonderful to talk to. And then afterwards, I spent a few days uh, in Vancouver, which, again, <laughs> third largest city in Canada. Had never been there before. Beautiful place. Very welcoming. Uh, had a really nice time. My laptop died. That kind of sucked. I uh, spent the week working at the Vancouver Public Library, which I have to say, also very nice. God bless public libraries. They set me up with a temporary library card in like 30 seconds. Let me use the computers, even though I don't live in BC. It was great. Anyway, not going to summarize the whole trip, but, uh, you know, thanks Salt Spring Island and Vancouver for being uh, so welcoming. I had a really nice time. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It just feels like we haven't uh, we haven't podcasted in a while, even though, you know, it's been about the same interval as it usually is between episodes. Well, here in Toronto, I've been keeping an eye on what's been happening. This is my city. I'm kind of the king of Toronto. Anyone will tell you that. There's something happening in my kingdom that has, that has me displeased. Something foul? Off with their heads, I say. <laughs> In the past on the podcast, we've talked occasionally about the local media. And one such media venue we've talked about is Now Magazine, the venerable alternative weekly. For those of you who are younger, might not know what an alternative weekly is, Picture a time when every city had, you know, a little free newspaper, a rag. Picture a time where there were multiple newspapers. Some of them were independent. Some of them only existed locally. I know that's hard to imagine. And these were like bar rags, tabloid size. You'd pick them up at the subway. You'd pick them up at your local restaurant, your grocery store, just at the entrance. 
Typically, you know, you pick them up because you wanted like concert listings or movie listings or that sort of thing. Uh, you wanted the ads for the escorts at the back, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a big part of the business model. But they also had, you know, a lot of like local news, often like reporting on local politics, things like that. And typi- I think people know what an alt weekly is, to be fair. <laughs> well, and, and typically, typically leans to the left. Mm-hmm. I would say alt weeklies. Don't think I'm painting with too broad a brush. A pretty lefty. The Village Voice. The Village Voice, right, is the is the emblematic, you know, er weekly well now magazine lasted in toronto much longer than most of them you say lasted in the past tense but i believe it is technically still alive is it not well not in print (laughs) form uh i mean it's been struggling along for a little while now for many many years it was an independent but a couple years ago ownership of it was given to this media conglomerate that uh, had ambitious plans to consolidate basically all of the remaining alt weeklies in the country and i believe there was a brief period where they were going to like pivot to writing a lot about esports and cannabis uh esports and cannabis were going to save the industry (laughs) yeah yeah you could tell some venture capital guys got in a room and they're like, all right, guys, it's time to innovate. And that was the result. Well, it was around that time that they stopped running the escort ads, which used to take up basically the back half of the publication. Uh, There are various reasons for this. I believe one of the reasons was that the conservative federal government passed new legislation that, I mean, if interpreted a certain way, could have implicated people who run ads like that in, you know, pimping and pandering. But I'm sure there were other reasons why they got rid of it as well. But of course, that took away a lot of the income that uh, makes a paper like that run. So I think they thought esports and cannabis were the industries that were going to take it over. Anyway, that only lasted a certain amount of time. And then really, really alt stuff like esports, <laughs> cannabis. I mean, I, I do think this is a problem. Yes. The venture capitalists who take over alt weeklies are not exactly um, alternative people, you know, at least not in the traditional sense. And now magazine has been kind of an interesting drama in this city for the last year, because for eight months, I mean, if you if you know any of the people who worked there, if you followed any of them on social media, you knew that whoever the company was that was putting this out had basically like stopped paying the people who were working there. Well, and the, and the stands and the boxes are still around, but they'd, they'd often be empty. And apparently issues were being produced. I mean, I don't think we ever saw much proof that they were printed out, but you could find the PDFs online. The content was coming online, but the people who were working there writing this content for apparently eight months were not being paid for it. For many of them, their stated reasons were that, first of all, they they believed in the brand. You know, they believed in having an alternative, progressive media voice in Toronto. And also, they thought that whoever was going to buy this brand from the... uh, Whatever the LLC was. (laughs) The the negligent deadbeat owners uh, was going to pay that eight months of salary. Um, But it turns out that was not the case. There's an article in the CBC this week called Now Just Became One of Canada's Only Black-Owned Publications, But Rebuilding Will Be a Struggle. And the second half of that headline, the rebuilding will be a struggle, has to do with the fact that they're not paying those employees for their, their eight months of lost wages because apparently... The new owners of Now Magazine struck a very clever deal where they bought the brand and the digital assets, but not the company. So therefore, yeah, they bought the word Now Magazine. They bought all the content on the website, but they didn't buy the company. Right. They bought the IP, not the institution. And therefore, they did not buy the debt. 
I don't know how it works. Uh, I mean, look, I don't know the history here, but it's like, I'm sure there's like the usual story of like rank deregulation behind that. That's the only way I can imagine that was possible. So, I mean, this article is very interesting reading. Uh, the uh, staff are understandably quite perturbed that they're not going to get paid for all of this. I do want to say that you can go on nowtoronto.com and see the new refurbished into the 21st century now magazine. Uh, it looks uh, really bad. <laughs> Uh, it's lowercase, right? They've gone lowercase. Well, it's like when Q with Gian Gameshi just turned into lowercase Q right. after Gian Gameshi left in disgrace. Now it's now lowercase. And some of the top trending stories are Metro links to postpone cutting of historic trees at Toronto's Osgood Hall. Canada uh, stalls on trade pact. Pamela Anderson's <laughs> Netflix documentary aired and viewers are commending her vulnerability. <laughs> Merritt Stiles officially becomes leader of Ontario NDP. Uh, let me let me see what else. Uh, Toronto is Canada's seventh most family-friendly city, colon, report. <laughs> I saw Rad, who used to write for, who used to be one of those staffers at Now Magazine, comment on Twitter that apparently they're quoting, like, Fraser Institute reports <laughs> in, in their articles. Well, a rightward pivot <laughs> underway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I encourage everyone to check out the Now Toronto Twitter feed if you want to see what a zombified brand looks like. <laughs> just like, if you want to see, like, what looks like just an algorithmically generated series of tweets tweets about ah, the, the news says that uh, trees are still growing comment and retweet if you think this is good <laughs> well luke that's what's been on my mind what is on your mind what is your this is show and tell what is your show <laughs> all right well, you know, uh, we are a Canada-based podcast, obviously. Take uh, off to the great white north. <laughs> Boo. Now, we've we've agreed contractually that will no longer appear. Although I saw that... The um, fans love it. Every time I've, I've like, said to you on mic that I don't want to hear that anymore, people protest. They're like, I like that song. Oh. Well, I disagree. Anyway, fact is, a lot of our listeners in the, are in the United States. And that's where my head is at a lot of the time uh, because of my job. I mean, I do think we'd be remiss not to uh, talk a little bit about this resolution that passed the U.S. House of Representatives a few days ago, condemning the horrors of socialism. Will, did you follow this? I'm just so glad somebody finally said something. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're long overdue for some hostility to the organized left in the United States. <laughs> Look, you know, as a piece of political theater, this thing was about as generic as it gets. I wrote a piece for Jackman about this. I began by revisiting, you know, various manifestations of this, you know, same kind of thing since the 1930s. Red baiting obviously has been, you know, it was kind of a structuring feature of American political culture, particularly during the Cold War, but it goes back before that as well. And of course, you know, McCarthyism and, uh, you know, the various manifestations of uh, similar of analogous sentiments, you know, has been weaponized against, you know, actual socialists, members of the civil rights movement, etc. The thing is, uh, there is a pretty longstanding history of it being weaponized against liberals as well. Like, you know, it's been used for generations against a type of liberal that is absolutely in no sense any kind of socialist or communist and has absolutely no sympathy for the left. And I think, you know, that is very much the spirit that this, you know, absurd resolution was tabled in the House this week. 
you know, uh, the actual text of it, you know, it's just kind of a potpourri of sort of like, you know, Lenin and Pol Pot and Mao and people will be familiar with this uh, genre. But of course, you know, the actual target of it is, you know, the handful of people associated with the left in Congress and also just like instrumentally the, the Democratic Party as a whole, which, you know, Republicans have insisted ever since I was born and before that as well is some kind of, you know, revolutionary socialist formation. You know, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, folks, they want to overthrow capitalism. They were all trained in the school of uh, Alinskyism and are inspired by Frankfurt School Marxism, etc. Now, I'm not going to take up any time rebutting this resolution. Because you can't. (laughs) <laughs> That's right, because the, the arguments it makes are uh, are airtight. I mean, there's some there is some pretty funny stuff in it. Like, you know, it, it mentions like Paul Pot and the Khmer Rouge without like mentioning the support the United States gave to uh, <laughs> gave to both, for example. But, you know, I get into it a little bit in my article. Uh, you know, my friend Ben Burgess also wrote a piece in the Daily Beast going into some of the arguments and, and how bad they are. But I think what was most interesting about this bill, which, you know, no one's going to remember it a week from now. I mean, there's very little significance to it at all. But I think it's interesting in terms of what it symbolizes, and I don't just mean the text of the bill itself, I mean what the official democratic response to it was. Now, uh, you know, the new golden boy of American liberalism, Hakeem Jeffries, the new House Minority Leader, uh, before the vote, he came out fresh from uh, throwing Ilhan Omar under the bus. Uh, He came out and he condemned the resolution as a cover for what he called an extreme MAGA agenda. Anyway, he voted for it uh, shortly after, as did Nancy Pelosi, Jim Clyburn. The vote breakdown is kind of interesting if you look at the Democrats who voted for and against it because, you know, obviously voting against it, you know, Pramila Jayapal, who chairs the uh, House Progressive Caucus, she was asked about it. She said, well, yeah, we're telling our members to vote against this. However you vote on the bill, this is what she said. They're going to use it against you, so it doesn't really matter. And, you know, the roster of members who agreed with that, you know, pretty obvious, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, Mark Pocan, etc. There were a few ones that made me laugh, like welcome to the movement, comrade Steny Hoyer, Richie Torres as well, pretty baffling. Now, in the voting to condemn the horrors of socialism, very interestingly, was uh, Ro Khanna, congressman from California, supporter of Medicare for All, uh, free college tuition, and twice a uh, pretty senior campaign surrogate for the only uh, democratic socialist in the United States Senate. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about Khanna's votes. I mean, I have my own uh, feelings about why he did that. Uh, You know, he's been arguing with people about it on Twitter, I think pretty unconvincingly. Khanna, I should say, also was uh, interviewed in Jacobin Magazine by Megan Day a few years ago, so voting to condemn the horrors of socialism when you've been interviewed in Jacobin is a little weird to say the least, not particularly consistent. What's his case? What What's he been arguing? Well, he basically said on Twitter, you know, while we can't cede, you know, the pro-growth case to the right, you know, the way to make the case for Medicare for all, you know, free college and the progressive agenda, you know, working people need is not to cede that territory to the right. And I mean, I don't know. I just The don't... right is actually very much in favor of socialism. They are in favor of a socialism for the rich. Yeah, yeah. In favor of corporate bailouts. Well, you know, don't get me started on, you know, that is a a popular piece of rhetoric. uh, And I actually don't happen to like that uh, socialism for the rich thing or, you know, when people talk about... Rugged individualism for everyone else. I mean, I understand the sentiment of that, but I think as a piece of rhetoric, it, it kind of muddles things. Anyway, I think, you know, at least in terms of the argument he made about the vote, I mean, I I don't think the argument is entirely sincere. I think uh, what he did is pretty cynical, and I don't think there's any getting around that. But I think what he's basically doing 
is he's taking what for me is a pretty elementary political insight that like, you know, you make the case for things like Medicare for all, free college, whatever it is, you make the case for a social democratic agenda in an accessible and common sense way. You don't go around using kind of esoteric political language, right? I mean, you don't you don't go door to door and talk to people about socialism. Like that's not going to be effective. I mean, you, you can go door to door and talk to people about socialism, but you're not going to address people when you're canvassing or organizing in the same way that you do when you're, you know, at a left-wing book club or something like that. And I think that's like pretty elementary. In fact, I think that's one of the things that was so effective about the strategy and messaging that, you know, Bernie Sanders, who again, Connor campaigned for twice, you know, pursued and has and championed. But the thing is, you can you can start from that premise and you can come to very different conclusions. So you can decide that somehow by, you know, voting for a stupid resolution like this, you know, sponsored by a bunch of Freedom Caucus psychopaths who are convinced, like actually convinced, you know, if you ask like Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or something like, is Joe Biden a socialist? They will look you straight in the eye and they, they will say yes. And they will believe that, at least in some sense, like actually believe that. And, you know, I think whether you're talking about, you know, somebody like Kana, who actually does support Medicare for All, or somebody like uh, Hakeem Jeffries or Nancy Pelosi or Jim Clyburn or, you know, the uh, the New Democrat caucus, the sort of right-wing caucus in the Democratic Party, you know, who pretty enthusiastically voted for this motion. I think you can differentiate between, you know, a type of uh, House Democrat that would vote for this because, you know, they would do sort of like actual ideological conviction, like Pelosi, Jeffries, people like that. I mean, they really actually are deeply hostile to the left. Get someone like Kana, who does actually disagree ideologically with a Pelosi or, you know, a Chuck Schumer or a Hakeem Jeffries on plenty of stuff. But I think he's basically making the same move and it represents the same stupid error in political judgment, which like, I don't think you have to be sympathetic to any kind of socialist project to have this insight. I mean, fuck, if Steny Hoyer and Richie Torres get it, it's not that hard. If you vote for something like this, all you're doing is affirming the long-standing narrative that the right has had of American politics. I mean, I'd forgotten about this, but rediscovered it when writing the article. But Barry Goldwater once wrote to Lyndon Johnson a few days after he'd accepted Kennedy's offer to be Kennedy's running mate. And he was urging Johnson to drop off the ticket. And he was saying, you know, I can't believe that somebody like you would would endorse the socialist wing of your party like this. You have the, the same thing happening, you know, going back further. Uh, even before the Cold War, when you have right-wing Democrats denouncing the New Deal as, you know, communist or whatever. Gets a little muddled back then because, like, yeah, in many cases, those people are Democrats. The party system's a little different in those days. The Democratic Party is a much broader tent ideologically and regionally than it is today. But the point is, you know, going back quite some time, you've had liberals of various stripes, you know, some of them more progressive and some of them more reactionary, more right-leaning, who have believed against decades worth of evidence to the contrary that voting for something like this somehow inoculates you against right-wing hysterics and hyperbole. And it so obviously doesn't. I mean, again, I'll just read what Pramila Jayapal said. However you vote on this bill, they're going to use it against you, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, she's right. It's completely absurd. We can move on from this in a second, but I think I did have one at least vaguely optimistic takeaway from all of this, which was that, you know, in compiling, you know, I, the first thing I did as I sat down and I compiled dozens and dozens of examples of like things that Republican politicians for the past few decades have deemed like socialist or communist. And I mean, it's literally like, you know, Bill Clinton's tepid healthcare reform, obviously the Affordable Care Act later. Mitch McConnell did a video in 2018 where he said, we need strong borders, not socialism. So, I mean, it really is just like a 
sort of floating signifier. Like the right's opposition to socialism, like their conception of it is totally mythic. They don't actually really know what it is. It's just like anything that partisan conservatives oppose at a given moment. And I think that for obvious reasons, when you use a word or a slur as much as they've leaned on this particular one, I think it's kind of drained of value. And I really do think, you know, Bernie Sanders obviously didn't win the Democratic nomination. But if someone with his politics who openly identifies as a Democratic Socialist and does not do the thing Ro Khanna stupidly and cynically tried to do this past week, where it's like, oh, I support Medicare for all, but I'm pro-growth and I'm not a socialist, etc. Like if Bernie could do that and get as far as he did both times with all the forces ranged against him, I mean, I really think we don't need to be scared of this anymore. If Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama is a socialist, then, you know, words have no meaning. It doesn't matter. What else do I get into today? In fact, all three of us been going places, looking for things, searching for things, going on adventures. They told everybody they were brother and sister. My brother didn't want nobody to know. You know how people are. You tell them something, they start talking. Terrence Malick wrote and directed this story of adultery, set principally in the wheat fields of the Texas panhandle just before America entered the First World War. It's both a nostalgic and an anti-nostalgic vision of the American past. The landscapes are vast and lonely, with the space and the images strained and the figures tilted. The characters are monosyllabic near mute. What is unspoken in this picture weighs heavily on us, but we're not quite sure what it is. The film is an empty Christmas tree you can hang all your dumb metaphors on. Uh, and that is what I think of the film <laughs> that we watched today, Terrence Malick's 1978 classic, Days of Heaven. Now watch this drive. <laughs> I actually hadn't seen this movie in over a decade. I saw this movie at U of T at the Innes College Free Friday Films. Hell they, yeah. They played it on 35 Man, so millimeter. so many fond memories. I haven't thought about that for a while. Yo, they've played it on a 35 millimeter print. I want to repeat that. A 35. They used to fucking ship in 35 millimeter prints at the Innes College Free Friday Films for free. And I, week after week, used to say, ah, I'll, do, I'll do it some other time. I saw Casino there. I saw Boogie Nights there. I saw the great film Super Fuzz there. A number of other films, but not enough. I should have seen more. And what you were just reading, of course, was not, in fact, a monologue that you had written. This is not going to be one of those episodes where we argue. That was presumably uh, Pauline Kael's review, how it opened. Yeah, it is her review from her reference book, 5001 Nights at the Movies, condensed from her New Yorker review. This is Terrence Malick's second film. I do think it's quite good. It had been so long since I'd seen it. It was kind of like watching it again for the first time, I gotta say. So this might be my favorite film. I think wow. I just need to get that wow. on the table. Having just watched it again, I think I think I do not uh, disrespect that. We have not talked about Terrence Malick uh, on this podcast very much. I mean, I think he's come up, but we've never done a Terrence Malick film. Uh, I hope we can. I hope we can change that. I think one of the reasons is just because when you like something as much as, you know, we both like Terrence Malick, I think it can be difficult to talk about. I mean, it's nice just for the purpose of, uh, you know, content production, when there can be a little bit of tension in your opinion about something. There really is no tension in this one, which I think is, is basically a perfect film. 
and so, you know, if anything explains our, our reticence to discuss it, I don't know, it's it's probably that. I mean, we're also just lazy, so who knows? I mean, if I have any reticence to discuss, I've never had any reticence to discuss this movie. I think it's just that Terrence Malick, my relationship with him is he's somebody who over the course of 15 years, I've seen all of his movies. I never had like a concentrated dose of studying Terrence Malick, you know, um, and I would say like a lot of people in the last couple of years, my interest in him has sort of waxed and waned i mean he's somebody who for the first 30 years of his career we only made three movies well yeah he cultivated this very like kubrickian mystique around him you know decades sometimes passed between movies and then it was, well, he made he made badlands in 1973 and then this film came out uh, 78 78 and, and, and then, then he didn't make another movie until the thin red line in uh, 98 came out 98 and then he made the new world in oh god i think 2005 2005 yeah. and then uh i saw that one theatrically that's the first that's when i got on on the train right and then tree of life in 2011 so that's five films between 1973 and 2011 it's not a lot but every single one of them is amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then after that there was a sudden burst of productivity a movie every year and here i actually don't know you know i would consider myself like a malik head but i actually don't really know his films for the last decade or I would, so i would love to hear your thoughts uh, i would like to revisit some of those films because for me, seeing them year after year, it was sort of diminishing returns. The shocking novelty, frankly, of the style of Tree of Life, that very almost ethereal, very little dialogue, very little story, the camera almost like this butterfly observing the events. Well, I, there's a director's cut of Tree of Life, right, which I think neither of us has seen. Criterion has a longer version that they put yeah. out, which I would like to I would like to check that out. Next, next week, next week, The New World, week after Tree of Life. All right, let's do it. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Uh, it's our podcast. Yeah. We can do what we want. Because I would like to do a deep dive. Because after that, I mean... I, I honestly think we're karmically due after the movie we watched for the Patreon this week. Uh, Amity, you didn't like Amityville Karen? Uh, I did not. But you can find out what Will thought of it at patreon.com slash Michael and us. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. We have an extra episode every week. Recent <laughs> episodes include our 400th episode spectacular where we talked about the Cool Duder movie. Cool Duder directed a movie called Amityville Karen. We've also done recent episodes on such topics as Black Adam and Nick Zed's Police State. Uh, opposite ends of the spectrum there. <laughs> after Tree of Life, it was one movie after another, and like it almost became a little shticky for me, all those shots of women twirling in fields. And by the time it got to that one, A Hidden Life, about the conscientious objector, and I, I was watching it thinking like, does this style even benefit this material anymore? Is this style almost becoming a sort of like shorthand? I could be completely wrong, but well, that's how let's, it let, for, me at the time. Well, let's turn Michael and us into a Terrence Malick podcast for the next two months and we'll and we'll find <laughs> out. By way of putting Terrence Malick and Days of Heaven in context, I want to read a little bit from an essay called Unearthed As It Is in Heaven by Adrian Martin. Let's start off with this. He writes, like many American directors who emerged in the early 1970s, Terrence Malick went to film school, to the American Film Institute, where indeed his fellow students included Paul Schrader and David Lynch. Sorry, can I just interrupt? I saw Paul Schrader maybe five years ago give a talk at the TIFF Light Box. Uh -huh. He was trying to explain his concept of transcendental cinema. Uh -huh. And the Q&A was various people asking him, different filmmakers, is this person transcendental cinema? Is this person? Is this person? Uh -huh. Is it Pitchetpong, Weirasathakul? Is Siming Lang? And he would say, no, no, no. No, no, no. And somebody said Terrence Malick, and he said, yeah, I went to film school with Terry and all that spiritual stuff. He was he was talking about that gobbledygook back then, too. 
That's all he said. <laughs> How great is that Twitter account that's just Paul Schrader's daily Facebook posts? I love it's it. It's so good. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, pause the episode and, uh, and check it out. So anyway, his, uh, Terrence Malick's fellow students included Paul Schrader and David Lynch. But unlike many film school graduates, Malick arrived there in 1969 with an already rich and varied past. In the study of philosophy, he translated a book by Martin Heidegger, and in journalism, Newsweek, The New Yorker. He also arrived with a script fully worked out down to the last detail. Badlands, a criminal lovers-on-the-run tale inspired by the exploits of real-life teen killers Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugit. Immediately after graduating, he began taking studio script writing and rewriting assignments. He even worked on an early, eventually discarded draft of Dirty Harry. But determined to bring his long-conceived first feature to the screen, he was simultaneously pushing to get Badlands produced as a truly independent, on-the-run project, gathering financing through a partnership with several investors and ultimately shooting with a non-union crew on a budget of less than $350,000. Warner Brothers released it to great acclaim in 1973. I'll just interject here to say that, you know, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't seen a Terrence Malick flick before, Badlands is actually a pretty good place to start. It stars Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. And, you know, it is very uh, Malickian, I would say, but it follows a conventional film structure more than perhaps some of his later films. So it's a good place to begin. Badlands, for all its exceptional qualities of style and tone, especially Sissy Spacek's blankly ironic voiceover narration, seemed to blend in with the general drift of 1970s new American cinema. The pointed reworking of movie formulas and the debunking of social myths familiar from the films of Robert Altman, Arthur Penn, or Bob Raffleson. But his next feature, Days of Heaven, scrambled all presumptions, even the most glowing, about Malick. He put the project together quietly with producers Burt and Harold Schneider and close collaborators who included art director Jack Fisk and shot in the wheat fields of Alberta, Canada in 1976. He then spent two years in the editing room with another friend, Billy Weber, crafting the material to achieve the aura he had first dreamed of, quote, a drop of water on a pond, that moment of perfection. I vividly remember the experience of sitting in a large state-of-the-art theater in 1978 encountering this work, which seemed like the shotgun marriage of a Hollywood epic in 70mm with an avant-garde poem. Wordless but never soundless, scenes flared up and were snatched away before the mind could fully grasp their plot import. What we could see did not always seem to match what we could hear. Yes, there was another couple on the run, Richard Gere and Brooke Adams as the lovers Bill and Abby, he fleeing a murder inadvertently committed while working in a Chicago steel mill, she pretending to be his sister during the wheat harvest season in the Texas panhandle around the turn of the 20th century, but this time the filmmaker's gaze upon them was not simply distant or ironic, but positively cosmic. And there was so much more going on around these two characters, beyond even the dramatic triangle they form with the melancholic figure of the dying farmer, Sam Shepard, now the landscape truly moved from background to foreground, and the the work that went on in it, the changes that the seasons wreaked upon it, the daily miracles of shifting natural light or the punctual catastrophes of fire or locust plague that took place. Well, if you don't mind if I interrupt for a second, a key moment in my own personal relationship with slash evolution with Terrence Malick was one day in I think 2019, I want to say, when you and I watched The Thin Red Line which was the only one of his films I had never seen up to that point. I went that long without seeing. Oh the man, you line. saved, you saved some good shit for last boy. Did I ever, because that one, I mean, I'm still quite haunted by that viewing and what I overwhelmingly remember about that movie, which is about the second world war is yeah. In the, in the Pacific. Yes. Yeah. The landscape is as much, it sounds corny to say, but in this case it's true. The landscape is as much a character as any of the other characters. True uh, of this film as well. Yeah. I would say, and Badlands. I mean, uh, the, the wind in the trees, that phrase that D.W. Griffith 
was so fond of, <laughs> is so important. The trees are as important as the characters are. And that's to elevate the trees, not to bring the characters down. There's a moment in that movie that has haunted me so much where it's after a battle where you see this little bird who's been injured and been covered with, you know, soot and exhaust. You see that little bird struggling and you just think, how many other war movies would take account of the bird? How many other war movies would think about the damage wrought on the animals, on the landscape, respect the fact that the animals have their own lives, their own stories happening. I think this is really the key to Malick's entire perspective in some ways, is that he has a holistic conception of nature. He doesn't really see human beings and human society as being independent from nature. He sees them as part of it, and he shoots them and tells stories about them in the same way, which is, I think, very critical to Days of Heaven as well. In some ways, arguably more, I think, than even in any of his other films. I want to read a little bit more from Adrian Martin here. He writes, Above all, the radical strangeness and newness of Days of Heaven were signaled to its first viewers by its most fragmented, inconclusive, decentered figure. The voiceover narration of young Linda Manns as Linda, Bill's actual sister, who is along for the ride, often disengaged from the main action, but always hovering somewhere near. It might have seemed that first twang like a reprise of SpaceX's quote-unquote naive viewpoint from Badlands, but Manz's thought track goes far beyond a literary conceit. It flits in and out of the tale unpredictably, sometimes knowing nothing and at other times everything, veering from banalities about the weather to profundities about human existence. Sometimes her sentences even go unfinished, hang in midair. In this voice, we hear language itself in the process of struggling struggling towards sense, meaning, insight, just as elsewhere we see the diverse elements of nature swirling together to perpetually make and unmake what we think of as a landscape, and human figures finding and losing themselves over and over as they desperately try to cement their individual identities or characters. Now I'm going to skip a little bit here, uh, but I do just want to read a little bit more. Writing, of course, remains important for Malick, who is an extraordinary word stylist. The shooting script of Days of Heaven does not much resemble the finished film. In many cases, elaborate dialogue scenes have been reduced in editing to a line or two, a mysterious reaction shot, and a cutaway to some natural phenomenon. The literary qualities of the project are, however, already evident on the page. The richly stylized and poetic vernacular of the speech, the expressive cycle of seasons, and an elemental storyline that is derived in its essence from various biblical sources. But this primal mythic story ends up as thoroughly displaced as the legend of John Smith and Pocahontas in the New World. It is hardly surprising to learn that Shepard, who is a superbly haunting presence in the film, thought himself to be playing someone who was less a flesh-and-blood, three-dimensional, psychological character than a kind of sketch, silhouette, or ghost. Now, this essay by uh, Adrian Martin is a wonderful piece of writing on the film and on Terrence Malick. I mean, I, in, a se in a way, I would like to read all of it, but I don't want to outsource the whole episode to him. So let's get into the movie. Well, I'm afraid there are only three short paragraphs of plot synopsis on the film on Wikipedia. So, I mean, as I've been saying for years, the most important thing about a movie is the script. Well, we were uh, we were listening to an interview with uh, Richard Gere, one of the stars of the film. The pretty woman himself. Yeah, I mean, Richard Gere was somebody who I grew up with in movies. Like, you know, I'd see like trailers for The Runaway Bride on TV. He was kind of, you know, a, an aging silver fox. But you watch this movie and it's like, okay, I, I, I get it. He's a very charismatic screen presence. And we watched this interview with him that I think was recorded in about 2007. And he basically made the point you just did. He said, you know, plot is actually less important uh, to this film, but, you know, really to film in general. I mean, it's it's what you what you remember is... How many films do you actually remember the story? <laughs> How many films, if you said the title, could you actually give the three-act structure? You don't. You, you re remember scenes. You remember scenes. You, you remember, remember vibes. Moments, atmosphere. performance. 
performances. You know, things like that. And I mean, really, that's what this film is. It's a series of moments. I mean, there was a script, but as Adrian Martin notes in his essay, I mean, the script was basically thrown out. I mean, Malik, as I understand it, basically instructed the actors. He said, look, you know, we're going to take a year or, or however long we need, and we're just going to shoot a lot of stuff, and we're going to find the story. Well, the magic trick that this movie pulls off, which I don't think Malik has always pulled off, is you've got these characters who are very minimally written, very little about their backgrounds, very little expository dialogue, very little dialogue in general. Some of them... Just just little moments, as Martin says. There'll be snippets of a conversation that'll then cut to a wheat field or something like that. Some of them don't even have names. I mean, the Sam Shepard character, who is one of the three main characters in the movie, is credited simply as the farmer. And yet, all of them feel like, you know, th- through the power of the performances and through the power of Malick's camera, feel like fully dimensional beings. I mean, this is the thing that is so incredible at this film is that it achieves a sort of universal poignancy, despite the fact that there's very, yeah, very little exposition, as you said. I mean, the film almost has a sort of view from nowhere. The characters are not deeply kind of fleshed out. And yet, I think very quickly, we feel like we know them. And these little snippets of dialogue, these little conversations, these little moments... The love, the hunger, the pain, these are very universal feelings. I mean, they, they just achieve such incredible weight. And I mean, I guess it's as good a time as any to, uh, you know, begin to discuss what this movie is actually about. But I think very importantly, it begins with this montage of images from the early 20th century. They're very simple images. You know, they're images of modernity and civilization, historic images. There's a shot of Woodrow Wilson when he's campaigning. There are a lot of shots of people, migrant workers, people working in factories, images of daily hardship, images that depict the coarseness of daily existence as it was for most of the people who were alive in the early 20th century. And so before we meet any of the characters, this is kind of how they're situated as part of this, I guess, in some ways, universal story, or at least story that is, you know, universal for probably a majority of the people or, you know, untold millions of people, at least, who lived before perhaps the mid 20th century for hundreds of years. I mean, for hundreds of years, when you get the first stirrings of urbanization in Europe, and then, you know, the process is radically accelerated when you have industrialization in the 19th century, all over the world, there is a profound sense of dislocation. I mean, people just going where there is work, being really without any fixed sense of place, even having their intimate relationships and friendships, you know, just conditioned by where they can find work, forming intimate bonds with people that are dissolved, you know, as soon as you have to hop on the next train to go to a different state to do hellish work in the fields for a season before you go somewhere else. This is how the film opens, and there's a wonderful early sequence after Richard Gere, who, you know, he works in this steel mill, and again, this is emblematic of how, you know, how little, in a way, the film tells us about these characters. You know, we see him working in the steel mill in Chicago, and he gets into a fight with a guy that ends up, you know, he's kind of hot-tempered, and, you know, this guy picks a fight with him. Completely unclear what the fight is about. We can't hear it over the sound of the steel mill. Kills this guy accidentally, just has to run away, and they're on a train with other migrant workers traveling down to the American South. I mean, this was all filmed in Alberta, but it's set in the Texas panhandle just after the turn of the century. So along with a lot of other seasonal workers, they're hired to work at this farm owned by this young, wealthy farm owner played by Sam Shepard. He's known only as the farmer. Another major character is the farm foreman played by an actor named Robert Wilk, who was a veteran of Westerns mostly. You can see him in High Noon, among other films, and uh, uh, an amazing face he's got. 
the two of them, Bill and Abby, the Richard Gere and Brooke Adams characters, like all the other workers are doing tough manual labor on the farm. One day, Bill overhears a conversation that he thinks means that the farmer, the Sam Shepard character, is terminally ill and is going to die shortly. And he crafts a cockamamie scheme with Abby that Abby marry him and thus inherit his wealth when he dies. Turns out to not be the case, but she does marry him. And over time, things get complicated. I like the way that the relationship between Abby and the farmer evolves in the movie because it is a love triangle. She does come to love the farmer in a way. And a lot of that, frankly, is because she's very comfortable living with the farmer, no? Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the deep kind of tragedy of the movie. Abby and Bill really do love each other, but the farmer just inhabits a reality. Like, he enjoys a kind of daily comfort that's completely alien to them. And I think in some ways, they're both kind of sucked into it. I mean, we see subtle changes in their behavior as she gets closer to the farmer. And then, you know, Bill, who's who's pretending to be her brother, although, you know, it's a pretty thin veneer. And you get the sense that the farmer actually knows all along. You know, he's, he's willing to sustain the illusion that their brother and well, sister... Well, he suspects until it starts to become unavoidable by which time though you know they've both kind of been pulled into you know the orbit and they both enjoy special privileges like most of the other workers have to leave when you know the the harvesting season is done but they get to stay and they're you know having lemonade on the porch uh bill is posing as abby's brother by the way that's an important plot Mm -hmm. detail and it seems they're a little more intimate than brother and sister ought to be Uh, Well, that about does it for plot. Uh, No, that's not true. There's also a big locust swarm that happens about three quarters of the way into the film. Uh, Spoilers, I guess. That devastates the crops. This happens at around the same time that the farmer begins to understand, fully, fully understand and fully accept the true nature of the relationship between Bill and Abby. After the locust swarm, with his whole personal industry destroyed, the farmer attacks Bill Bill responds by killing him, and Bill and Abby and Bill's younger sister, the 12-year-old girl who narrates the film, then go on the run, hopefully for some kind of better life. I mean, this this sequence is incredible. I mean, for me, you know, when we said earlier that, you know, you remember films because of individual moments and, and, and vibes, really, this sequence where the locusts come, for me, is one of the most memorable kind of 10 or 15 minute uh, sequences in the history of cinema. I mean, it builds so slowly and so ominously. It begins with shots of Abby and Bill's sister just preparing food in the farmer's house, and they start to be irritated by the presence of of these bugs. And very quickly, the irritation, you know, becomes something more. And then over the course of the next five or ten minutes, you know, this this becomes an irritation for the whole farm as workers are dispatched to kind of try to swat the locusts away. We see shots of, you know, the ducks reacting with glee as they're, you know, just devouring as many locusts as they can find. Eventually, they start to try to smoke out the locusts. But then in his anger, uh, the farmer attacks Bill and smashes a lantern on the ground, which then lights a part of the field on fire and then a few minutes later i mean the entire farm is just this like towering inferno which i guess symbolizes the destruction of whatever illusion was sustaining abby's marriage to the farmer and you know bill's continued presence on the farm and you know the scene afterwards where the farmer goes to try and kill bill reminds me of a number of the murders that happen in badlands but i mean martin sheen's character is kind of unthinking in his brutality and a lot of the murders are just 
you know, they're completely forgettable. There's no drama to them. He's not somebody who kills with any emotion. But similarly in this scene, I mean, the farmer sort of half-heartedly points a gun at Bill and tries to shoot him. And then Bill just reflexively grabs the gun and, you know, I think accidentally kills the farmer by stabbing like a screwdriver into his chest. And then, you know, once again, Bill and Abby and Bill's sister are on the run. And needless to say, things go much worse for Bill than they would go for the farmer if the farmer succeeded in uh, finishing the job on Bill. Now, this final sequence when Bill and Abby are on the run, I think is just remarkably shot. It's completely unclear. I mean, we just see, again, a series of images and moments, you know, like we see throughout the movie. They're pawning some jewelry they've presumably stolen from the farmer, you know, various items that they're pawning for cash. They buy a little boat. It's not clear what distance they travel. It's not clear how much time has passed. There's some of my favorite narration uh, in the movie where the young girl is talking about, you know, the people they're seeing on the riverbanks and a bonfire where she thinks she's hearing the ghosts talk and things like that. And by the time the police catch up with Bill and Abby, I mean, it's completely unclear to me how much time has passed, whether it's been days or weeks or months or even years since they fled the farm. There is a wonderful moment at the end where, you know, despite the tragedy of the ending, where Abby, you know, who isn't related to Linda by blood and, you know, probably is really not in a position to take care of her, leaves her at a dance school. And I do think there is some significance to this gesture because, you know, we do hear Abby earlier in the film, you know, saying that she wanted to be a dancer. So she's trying to do Linda a favor. But Linda, who's very sad to be left alone, does reconnect with a friend who she meets early in the film when they first arrive on the farm. Where are you going? For a walk. I don't know where, but... Go go beat the heck out of some tree or something. Take it out on him. You coming with me or what? This girl, she didn't know where she was going or what she was going to do. She didn't have no money on her. Maybe she'd meet up with a character. I was hoping things would work out for her. She was a good friend of mine. We didn't mention the scene, but actually, I think there are a few scenes in the movie that I find as affecting as the, you know, the scene very early on. I mean, it's still really act one of the film where Linda's friend, who's, you know, much older than her. I mean, when this is your life, your friends are where you find them. She's running to catch a train because she's got to get on and, and go on to the next, you know, the next job, the next, you know, dislocated phase of her existence. And she's saying goodbye to Linda. And it's this very hurried goodbye. And again, we only know these characters through just a handful of moments. And yet, I don't know, for me anyway, there's such a there's such an emotional weight to this goodbye. This doesn't really fit in anywhere, but uh, something else I love about this movie is that uh, some of the music, anyway, I think the most memorable music in the film uh, was written by Leo Kotke, who, I don't know, some listeners may be familiar with, but Leo Kotke is really the, the virtuoso of the 12-string guitar. He wrote a score called Enderlin, which is used throughout the movie. He wrote one of my favorite pieces of kind of experimental guitar music ever. It's called Vaseline Machine Gun. Go and listen to that. Anyway, the very distinctive music you've uh, been hearing throughout the episode, that's Leo Kotke. Um, by way of going out, I mean, I know I said I didn't want to outsource the whole episode to Adrian Martin, but I do love the I way... some more kale I can read if you want. <laughs> let's, let's go with Adrian Martin, shall we? We'll come back to Terrence Malick, obviously, but I think this is a nice way to put uh, Days of Heaven to bed for now. Martin writes, Malick's films have sometimes been frozen by those unsympathetic to them in pious homilies or grand statements. Man versus nature, the redemptive path to God via love and sacrifice, the corrupting effects of civilization encroaching upon an idyllic wilderness, 
Yet nothing is so certain or schematic in his work. As always, everything is in motion, seeming opposites ceaselessly transforming each other. Days of Heaven shows us, in myriad inventive ways, how nature and culture are always intertwined, how a certain kind of technology, a certain kind of civilizing process, is part of even the humblest garden arrangement, the most elementary use of cloth to cover the body, the fashioning of a piece of a tree to make music. This is part of the deep Heideggerian legacy in Malik. There is no pure being, only the action of hands upon the world, fashioning, for better or worse, a living space, a temporary arrangement of people and materials. And those cosmic shots that conjure heaven and earth gazing at each other as in a mirror, they are far from constituting a reassuring New Age bromide. Malik resembles at one level the tragic philosopher Simone Weil, the God in heaven in whom she so fervently believed was not in her view, by our side and guiding our every step, but rather very far away, discernible only as a distant echo, someone who had set in motion a terrible destiny machine that would first bring us pain, separation, betrayal, and wars before it delivered us any faint or fleeting redemption. Malik is a true poet of the ephemeral. The epiphanies that structure his films, beginning with Days of Heaven, are ones that flare up suddenly and die away just as quickly with the uttering of a single line like she loved the farmer. The flight of a bird or the launching of a plane, the flickering of a candle or the passing of a wind over the grass. Nothing is ever insisted upon or lingered over in his films. This is why they reveal subtly different arrangements of event, mood, and meaning each time we see them. Because everything is in motion, everything is whisked away quickly, and the elements of any one cellular moment are very soon redistributed and metamorphosed into other moments. Just look at and listen to the last minutes of Days of Heaven, with their split-second swing between end-of-the-line melancholic emptiness and wide-open possibility for a sublime illustration of this ephemerality which is miraculously caught and formalized in the language of cinema.